All right, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Matt Bieber from the New Mexico Department of Health, uh, back with our principals once again for another COVID-19 press update. Um, today we have DOH Acting Secretary, Dr. David Scrace, and DOH Deputy Secretary, Laura Padahon, Dr. Laura Padahon. Uh, we're not joined today by um, Dr. Ross, Christine Ross, the state epidemiologist. Uh, Dr. Scrace will be covering her portions of the presentation today. Um, and one other note before we dive into the content is that uh, we will not be doing a simultaneous or a, um, a consecutive Spanish translation on this presentation today. Uh, we will, uh, as we were doing for quite some time, be running a simultaneous uh, Spanish translation on the governor's YouTube channel. So that's viewable. That should be uh, available momentarily. Um, and uh, and um, so please please look there if that's what you're interested in. And, uh, and then as usual, we'll just go through the presentations and then transition over into the Q&A portion. And with that, I don't think any other opening remarks are required. So we'll hand it right over to Dr. David Scrace uh, to kick things off. Uh, thanks very much, Matt. Uh, just want to recognize Matt. He's been with us for quite some time and on these press conferences. And this is Matt's last press conference. He's going to be moving uh, to seek a career in guidance and counseling and uh, uh, is going back to school for that. We will miss him. He's been a great, uh, great, great addition to the team and really helped us explain COVID in a way that you can understand, which isn't always how we might explain it in the first place. With that, I'm going to go to the first slide, which is some pretty uh, striking uh, news here. Uh, well, the second slide is, sorry. This is just the United States. You can see it's all red, red not being good. And you can see that uh, uh, the very high percent, almost all of the U.S. is in uh, unimpeded community trans transmission. Uh, the map on the left is almost all red. And on the right, you can see the red line is the uh, daily trends. I, I believe it's a seven-day moving average there. And Brianna, if you go all the way to the end of that curve, you can see that uh, we are going, we are in the, as a country, having more cases per day than we've had since the very beginning of the pandemic. And that, as you know, is due to Omicron variant. And we'll be talking a lot about that today as well. On a more local level, to bring this information home, uh, let's go to the next slide. And you can see uh, not actually reflected in the, in the slide in the, in the graph to the right, but if you look at the table, uh, we have uh, over 17% of New Mexicans now have had COVID, 2,514 cases uh, today uh, alone, hospitalizations for 197, we'll talk about that. Some of you sent in some great question, questions about hospitalizations and deaths, and deaths kind of continuing at a relatively high pace. We'll show you the graph on that as a minute. It's worth taking a moment just to remember that every death leaves 10 or more people on average behind, grieving the loss of that one person. And, and unfortunately, most of these deaths now with the availability of vaccine uh, are preventable. And so that makes it even harder, particularly for those of us in healthcare to, to see that kind of uh, death toll continue. Uh, if we go to, I think it's worth remembering that 1.6% of cases here in New Mexico end up uh, passing from coronavirus infection. We'll probably refer to that number later 
in the Q&A period, and I wanted us to stick that uh, in our minds. Influenza, on the other hand, the death rate is 0.14%. So at least uh, our experience to date, uh, death rates 12 times higher than they are for influenza. And then on the right, uh, you can see, you can look at the gray area there that you're not supposed to look at because the data is incomplete. But one thing about the gray area is those numbers in there and those little single bars by day, they never go down. And so we will be seeing a rise in cases. Uh, we're very confident over the next uh, two to four weeks here in New Mexico. And I believe that the rolling seven-day average is likely to surpass the previous high point in mid-November of last year, two years ago now, of, of uh, 2020, sorry. Next slide, please. Uh, we wanted to update you a little bit on Delta versus Omicron. You, you all know, and you've heard me say it a million times, there's like five things you need to know about vaccines and, and uh, the first thing you need to know is, can you detect it by routine testing? The answer is yes. And in fact, there's a little quirk about Omicron that a certain type of testing machine, which we happen to run in the Department of Health, uh, the COVID tests identify three different parts of the virus to turn into a positive test and report on all three. And Omicron uh, only identifies two of the three. It, this one's missing, the S gene, that's my fourth finger, or it, uh, it's the S gene dropout. So we have a way of monitoring how much Omicron we have in the state without actually having to wait the two weeks to get the genomic testing that gets done that produces the graph you'll see on the right. Spread rate, latest from the CDC is it's three times higher than Delta. Delta was three to five times higher than Alpha and previous uh, variants. And so uh, this is way into the chicken pox chickenpox range, hospitalizations and deaths. There was, well, there were some reports of increases in hospitalizations and deaths with Delta. We did not see that in our state in terms of rates. We are seeing some early evidence that I think is a little premature, but not completely premature. I'll show you some of it in a minute that does begin to really be convincing that death rates and hospitalizations rates uh, for Omicron are much lower than they are for Delta. And that is something we're dearly, uh, we're hanging on to uh, for dear life because that's the only thing that can really save our hospital situation is to have those hospitalizations be, uh, <clears throat> be lower. Uh, resistance to treatment, Delta was resistant to some treatments. Omicron is resistant to more treatments. We'll also talk about that today. We still don't really know about the vaccine. We do know that the vaccine, particularly boosted individuals, seem to have incredible protection against hospitalization and death uh, from Omicron infection, uh, maybe not as much protection from infection itself. Uh, and we don't, won't know what the peak percentage is. When we did this slide, our data from last week is something like 50 to 60% of cases in New Mexico based on that method I just told you about. Um, 50 to 60% of those cases are Omicron. If you ask me, what I think it is today, I'd say 70%. Uh, I think next week our data will show us in the 70% range or even a little higher. The acceleration from zero to 100% of Omicron in the countries where it's already occurred has been very rapid, even a little bit more rapid than Delta, which went from basically less than 
to 100% in about six weeks here in our state. So anyway, uh, some good news, some bad news. We'll talk more about the resistance to treatment in just a few slides. Next slide, please. Uh, this was from the New York Times this morning. Uh, it's South Africa trends during Omicron. You can see it started to peak on November 24th and is already substantially back down five weeks later. There's some hope for us in that. Uh, that would be, you know, Delta went up in July and has stayed up all the way through December. So if there is a shorter window for this variant, of course, we'd welcome that. Uh, but you can see a pretty quick up uptake and down slope over the six week period. And then the other thing that's worth noting is the deaths do go up a little bit, but not a tremendous amount. And that's one of the things we're hoping for. We'll see is a much lower death rate with the Omicron variant. And we can talk more about what that means in a minute. On the right, this graph is a little hard to uh, understand. There are three different graphs and they all refer to cases, hospitalizations and deaths right now in the United States compared to last winter. Uh, and so that 100% line that goes straight across is anything below that is less uh, than last winter and anything above it is more. So you can see the cases are way higher, uh, almost double uh, the number of cases in the US. We're at an all time high, you saw that. Uh, compared to last winter, hospitalization is just going up a little bit, but I will remind you that there's only about a two week interval and that's what we normally see is a two week lag. So I'm gonna feel a lot better and I'm a lot more confident and able to predict more uh, and our, our epidemiologists will have better predictions and our modeling team uh, when we have a couple more weeks of data under our belt. You can see that uh, the Omicron, the case curve, the gray one on the bottom right there, well below uh, 50%. But again, it's early and I like to see six weeks of data after the peak to declare victory. But I'm, I think we have reason to be cautiously optimistic and uh, we'd like to see a little bit more data. So Omicron is here, it's serious. In another week or two, it'll be 100% of the cases in our, of the new cases in our state. Next slide, please. Uh, this is a, the data we show every week. Uh, the epidemiologists, there's a little bit of a lag. This is a four week report. And you can see, uh, not too much of a lag though. You can see uh, cases, hospitalizations and deaths. And now if you look, you see 33% of the cases are now up to, uh, uh, <clears throat> are in people who've been vaccinated. Um, I have not yet seen the stratified data about boosted or not. Uh, we'll have better data on that next week for sure. Actually, I've been on leave and I just came back today for the press conference. Still have a few more days, but then I'll be back full-time next week. Uh, but you can see the trend in hospitalizations Still great protection against hospitalizations uh, from vaccination. And you can also see that uh, uh, deaths are much, much lower in the vaccinated population than the unvaccinated. Keep in mind too, this is the percent of the total number and there's three times as many fully vaccinated people as they are, as there are, sorry, unvaccinated people. So that makes this the or this, this magnitude of this 
you know, three times bigger this difference uh, than what it even shows here in terms of vaccine protection. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so hospitals doing way better. If you look back to December 9th, 716 COVID patients, uh, now only 472. That's the good news. The bad news is really in terms of being overwhelmed, the hospitals about are about the same as they were. Remember, this is only COVID patients. They have a lot of non-COVID patients. And I think 472 certainly looks better, but we talked to them yesterday and they are still struggling. They're struggling getting staff. They're struggling covering shifts. They're struggling getting the work done. Still have long emergency room waits uh, and delays in care. Uh, next slide shows you why you shouldn't be overly reassured. The available number of COVID ICU beds yesterday at 3.01 p.m. in the state was nine. That's a I think we had one other week where it was eight since the beginning of the pandemic. This is the second lowest number of ICU beds we've had. Of course, those are all full by now, those nine, but other people will have been discharged and getting very low on medical surgical beds as well as we, uh, and basically there's sort of a gridlock because everyone is so full, it's very hard to transfer people from one hospital in New Mexico to another one usually in Albuquerque or Santa Fe or Las Cruces, it's hard to do that right now because our ICUs are still so very, very full. Uh, next slide. Uh, staffing assistance for New Mexico hospitals. Uh, this is, you know, the state is contracted with a staffing contractor to bring in more nurses around the state. This has opened some more beds. So we're happy about this. The staffing assistance can be 100% reimbursable by the, fed, the feds as long as we fill out the forms properly. And the reason we're showing you this slide today is that we had 75 federal people in Farmington and San Juan Regional Medical Center uh, a week ago or two weeks ago, but uh, some of those FEMA teams have left. And so that, that all this shows is a drop in those individuals. And we're working with new contractors to try to bring more nurses into the state as I mentioned a month ago, I think we have a very narrow window. Pretty soon, everybody in the country is going to be needing to do this. And many hospitals, states, regions of states have joined New Mexico and our continued declaration of crisis standards of care in order to try to uh, make uh, some way of ensuring that everybody gets as much care as everybody can get, given the significant restrictions we face but we're a long way away from one of us being able to call an ambulance, have them show up at our house, take us to a hospital, let's say for a heart attack, get us into the emergency room immediately, get us to the cath lab within the uh, uh, reckon, recommended very short interval, interval that has the best outcomes and then go to an ICU bed. So we are uh, remain up against it in our hospitals and now the rest of the country will be joining us. Remember that even though Omicron has a lower hospitalization rate, if we have record number of cases, that produces, so half the hospitalization rate, twice as many cases equals the same number of people in the hospital. And that's what we're most concerned about today. One of the reporters asked a question, should we be really looking at cases? Should we pay more attention to something else like hospitalizations? Great question. I can tell you that I've been focused 
almost exclusively on hospitalizations since August when we started uh, being over full. And that is a key number that I use to see how we're doing in the pandemic. Next slide. Uh, COVID-related deaths, uh, they're still at a high rate. You know, we always ignore pretty much the last two or three data points. And for those of you who watch every week, you'll remember that back in November, and Brianna, if you can point to that 81 uh, there, uh, November 1st through 7th, you remember that that number started at 20, and then a couple of weeks later it was 40, and then went up to 60. I was kind of shocked to see it up to 80 when I got back from leaving. Uh, so that's a high number of deaths. That's deaths per week. So it's over 10 deaths per week. And uh, I'm, again, we're very much hoping that Omicron will have a much lower uh, death rate uh, or what we call not death rate, but case fatality rate, which is the number of deaths divided by the number of cases. Next slide, please. Uh, we're doing well. There's really, really good news on monoclonal antibodies, and there's really bad news. I, I am assuming you'd like the good news first, and that is <clears throat> that we gave over 1,400 doses of monoclonal antibody treatment over the past uh, week. You can see the data there. Tremendous performance from our delivery system, despite their staffing shortages. Again, Presbyterian, far and away the leader in their statewide system, Eastern New Mexico, Memorial, Norley, uh, many of these hospitals always on the list, and Gallup Indian Medical Center, thanks to our friends there and Gerald Champion for getting uh, these antibodies into people. If you remember, it's you have to be over 65, uh, 65 or older, sorry. Oh, sorry, you have to have a positive COVID test and symptoms, and then either you're 65 or older, you, or you have underlying conditions, or you have obesity which is an underlying condition. Uh, I got confused because I just made a phone call to get somebody some monoclonal antibodies and I was telling you more about them than the, the situation. So that is the really good news. But notice at the bottom there, BAM, Eddie, uh, 738 doses, Regeneron, 620 doses, Sotrofimab, 70 doses. And the problem with that is that we are now learning that both BAM, Eddie and Regeneron are not effective treatments against uh, Omicron. And so with us being over 50% already, we're in the process of diverting all of our resources to other options than those two. Huge problem though, because that's, if I'm doing my math correctly, 1,758 cases out of uh, 1,420 or so uh, no longer uh, will be effective with forward use as Omicron takes over. The next slide, our pharmacist, uh, Courtney Lovato, who's just fantastic, did a great job making this chart for us this morning. And uh, so I'm, let me go through the chart first and, and we'll talk about some of the details. Paxlovid, we've talked about that last month, new oral agent, 88% uh, reduction in hospitalization and death. You only have to take it for five days. It has to be, be the treatment has to be started within five days of uh, your test or your symptoms. The bad news is we're currently only getting 170 courses from the federal government. The good news is that they're doubling their orders for that, but again, doubling uh, 170 only gets you to 340 and doesn't make up 
for the gap or inexperience with the loss of Bameti and Regeneron. Remdesivir, we've been giving remdesivir in this state for uh, two years now, doing a great job with that. You can see that uh, it is three doses. Uh, there are an hour to two hour infusions on three consecutive days, 87% reduction in hospitalizations. Uh, and there's no allocation. So hospitals can order as much of this as they want. There isn't a shortage right now. There could be soon. And the thing about it, though, is that three separate one to two hour infusions compared to the one infusion of citopramab is not favorable, uh, especially for just a 2% improvement. If we had an unlimited supply of citopramab, we would not be even thinking about using remdesivir because it puts a real tax uh, on hospital personnel, where is, where is, and that's where the majority of our uh, this would have to be given. Uh, but we do have a supply, so we're gearing up. And I think our Albuquerque hospitals are meeting uh, this week. By Friday, we'll have a plan for how we're going to divide up this work. Uh, Satopramab, that's the one that's the best uh, uh, and the only now uh, monoclonal antibody infusion that significantly reduces hospitalization and death with Omicron. It's another IV infusion, only 30 minutes. And we have 174 courses. So what I'm doing here is I'm looking at 174 plus 170 is 334 and thinking that's a big gap to get all the way up to 1,428 doses in a week. So that's where we think remdesivir can help. And of course, we're working really hard to increase our federal allocations for the oral drug Paxlovid and for more sotrovimab. Now, uh, Molnupiravir, while I was away, got approved by the FDA. It only provides a 30% reduction in the chances of hospitalization and death. Of course, if you're one of that 30%, it's 100% of you that doesn't have to go to the hospital or that doesn't pass away. And so there is some benefit there. We are going to use it, but we would rather focus our energy and attention on the higher benefit drugs. It too is an oral agent, best to get treated within five days, only need treatment for five days distributed by the federal government. And there's more of that available precisely because it's less effective. So what does this mean for the average viewer or reader? Well, number one, uh, we are having to control where and how we prescribe some of these things, Paxlovid. For example, we're focusing on counties that don't have any access to uh, MABs. Uh, and so uh, there is a nice website. Uh, if you go to our website and click on COVID-19 treatment, there's a couple new pages that came up in the past couple of days that explain more about these drugs and courses and how to get them. The feds also have a website for monoclonal antibodies. But we are going to be in a tight spot for approximately two to three weeks, maybe longer, until production of Paxlovid, Sotovimab, uh, substantially increase and availability increases. So if you are having trouble finding uh, monoclonal antibodies, particularly in the next two weeks, uh, this will be why. And uh, we are working very hard to bring up a temporary remdesivir, even though it's three times as difficult in order to try our best to fill that gap until production improves. So this is a really important slide other than hospitals, 
I think this could be our second most important pain point. You could argue it's our first most important pain point because if we don't treat people with these agents, then we'll have more hospitalizations and that will make it even more difficult. So uh, we wanted to just let you know what was going on. And uh, typically most, uh, I think most emergency rooms in the state of New Mexico now are administering some form of monoclonal antibody, but of course ER waits are quite long at the present time. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna turn it over now to Laura. And uh, Laura and I split up uh, the responsibility of uh, Christine today. And so in addition to the drugs that we have to treat COVID, of course, we have lots and lots of other options. And Laura is gonna be walking us through that. And, uh, and I'll be back at the last slide and then we'll open up for questions. Laura. All right, thank you so much, David. So yeah, I mean, everything you've just said, David, and just the concern about Omicron, how infectious it is, um, 10 times more infectious than the original. Um, you know, I think we're all wondering, well, what can we do? And I think we're going back to always that we do have tools to fight COVID. And um, let's just start with the first one, which is vaccines and boosters. Um, it's really exciting what David just shared, you know, about the data showing that people who are vaccinated um, and then get boosted, boosted have a much higher rate of being able to prevent getting uh, Omicron. So that's really something we wanna keep on encouraging everybody to get their boosters if they haven't gotten their boosters and if they haven't gotten their primary doses, um, go get your primary doses. So it's our best way so that if we, we are you know, it, it's so infectious. If we do get Omicron, well, it's going to be a much more milder disease and our vaccines and boosters will help prevent hospitalizations and death and, and you know, even having to get a, a therapeutic treatment like monoclonal antibodies or medications. So uh, we wanted to just go over with everybody again, um, all the different vaccines and boosters you can get right now. And this is a long list. And so don't worry, we also get confused sometimes and actually, you know, new vaccines and booster recommendations are coming out every day. In fact, just yesterday, several new um, recommendations came out and same with even today. So let's just start with um, people who are 18 and over. Um, anybody 18 and over, just remember you can receive any COVID-19 vaccine and booster. We currently have the Pfizer series. So the Pfizer primary series, so your first two doses of Pfizer, um, and then you can then get any brand of booster dose five months after your primary series. So that's three doses in total. Um, the same thing with Moderna. Um, Moderna is actually, you can get your Moderna primary series, those two doses, and then six months later, you can actually get any brand of booster doses after that primary series. Um, the same for J&J. &J. Uh, you can get your first dose of J&J &J, and then any brand two months after your first dose. So I know it's hard to keep track of all those doses. One of the things that did come out per CDC, they do recommend Pfizer and Moderna over Johnson & Johnson in most situations. So just remember, if you got J&J, &J, you can also get a Pfizer or Moderna and vice versa. You can mix and match 
your primary and booster doses um, vaccine brands. It's it's okay to do that. And um, and it's so like let's say you get to a vaccine site and you're like, oh darn, I wanted to get Moderna because uh, I got Moderna last that time and there was Pfizer. You can go ahead and get a Pfizer. It's just as effective for your booster. Um, this is new, you know, new updates. Um, or, you know, within the month, uh, past month, individuals 16 and 17 year olds can also, you know, get boosters. So many 16 and 17 year olds have gotten their primary Pfizer doses and then their booster vaccines. And remember, they can't get any other brand, just Pfizer. Um, your kids, five to 11 year olds, um, you guys can receive only the Pfizer primary vaccine right now. However, um, yesterday um, with the uh, CDC, they actually said individuals five and older who are moderately or severely immunocompromised should get an additional shot after 28 days that matches their primary series. So if you have a kid who you know, has some severe immunocompromised status, um, you know, you can get your child an additional dose um, to help them with their immune suppression, um, you know, to help fight off COVID. Um, then individuals 16 and older, this is another reminder, those who are moderately or severely immuno immunocompromised also should also get a booster. So that's four doses in total. Uh, people who are severely immunocompromised get one, you know, your first two primary doses then you can get 28 days later your um, additional dose. And then, you know, five to six months later, depending on what um, doses you got, you can get a booster as well. So that's just a reminder for all of you who are immune compromised, you can get an addition, you know, get additional dose and then your booster. Um, and then today um, we're just waiting on the CDC. Uh, individuals 12 to 15 year old, uh, age group can receive a Pfizer booster at five months. Um, so that's exciting too. That's likely approved today. Yeah, Laura, so, it was approved today. Um, we believe it was like, I don't know. Uh, no, it, it was. Happened right now. You. Oh, you, oh, that's news. great. It was approved today. Oh, now awesome. just uh, uh, the director Walensky just needs to sign it and we're good to go. Oh, perfect. Sorry to break in there, but. No, that's great. We have late breaking news. Thanks. Yeah, that's breaking news. We were thinking that was going to happen during the press conference and it did. So thank you, David. That's really great news. So that's great for all of you guys out there who are 12 and older who want to get your booster, because remember, the booster really helps to fight off Omicron, um, serious hospitalizations and death. Remember, they're safe, free to you at no cost. They've been proven to be effective. Um, you can get your free vaccine appointment at vaccinenewmexico.org. You can look for a vaccine. We actually have a lot of openings right now. Um, Vaccines.gov is another site you can look for, um, for you know, doses and going to your local provider or pharmacy as well. So just a reminder, an exciting reminder that we have many tools with the vaccine to help um, fight off COVID. Next slide. Um, the New Mexico vaccine update, just to kind of keep everyone updated here. Um, once again, you know, many, many uh, New Mexicans have completed their primary series, which is the, uh, you know, first two doses of Pfizer or Moderna and your first dose of J&J. Um, so that's 64.8% of all New Mexicans have, have gotten that. 
Um, and then you can see all the different age groups. You can see that, you know, our five to 11 year olds, we really uh, need to keep on working on five to 11 year olds. There are only 17.3% of them have completed their full series. And so just keep on encouraging, you know, kids out there, the parents out there that let's get our kids vaccinated and protect them as well. Um, for people who are partially vaccinated, so not their full primary series doses, um, that's 76.7% of all New Mexican. But once again, you can see um, it goes gets lower for 12 to 17 year olds and 28.5% for five to 11 year olds. So let's keep on getting our kids vaccinated. Um, another new terminology we've been using throughout the pandemic, like fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, um, because of new updates with booster doses, especially data showing that the booster dose with Omicron and other variants is um, much more effective. Um, we're now calling it up to date. And so we just wanted to start getting everyone used to that term because um, up to date means that those of you who have received a booster when you're eligible are considered up to date. And that has a lot to do with, like I said, the effectiveness of the vaccine. And, and um, one of the things we did want to mention is that a lot of our um, school teachers and state employees um, will be having to get up to date on their vaccines on the 17th. So just reminding everybody, like you can go once again to any many of these sites around the state. They're really open right now and you can receive your booster dose and be protected from Omicron. Okay, next slide. Um, so another cool tool to fight COVID-19, the one we've had been using for a long time is masks. Um, masks are just so great to like prevent us from getting, you know, this is an airborne disease. So it will prevent us from getting the droplets of respiratory droplets from Omicron. And also if we're sick, we can prevent other people that we love from getting sick. So um, I wanted to just um, do a quick reminder of the different kind of masks and how to use our masks. So um, one of the things that because of the high rate of spread of Omicron right now, um, and then prior to that Delta, we do have the masking indoors. And we really do want to move away from like, you have to mask indoors, but more like we're masking indoors. It's it's um, it's a way for us to prevent getting COVID and giving others COVID, uh, regardless of your vaccination status, because it's true that you can get breakthrough cases of COVID, but they will be much more mild. But if you have mask on and use it properly, you have a less chance of getting COVID. So I just wanted to go through different kinds of masks. Um, what the CDC says is that make sure that a mask that you're wearing just fits snugly against your face. So, you know, those of you who have kids know that, you know, you wanna have your kids wear your mask and then make sure that you have a nose wire on the top. This is a surgical mask. And, um, you know, some people can use a mask fitter or a brace on top of that. I don't have one, but um, you can also use a second layer if you want. And I kind of think about it as risk. You know, if I'm gonna, go to a super crowded place and everyone's kind of crunched together, you know, you really want to be more protected on your mask. So maybe you want to do a second layer, which is a cloth mask. And oftentimes a cloth mask can just help you, you know, stick that under mask in a little bit better. So that's, that's a great way to keep your mask on. Um, and what the CDC has found is, is that 
wearing your mask and uh, sorry, not like this. You don't want your nose showing or, you know, uh, wear it like that. Um, just you want to cover your nose and your mouth. Um, this the mask, if you wear your mask and it's snug and it's uh, easy to wear, people are more likely to keep it on. I know a lot of people are concerned that they want to use a KN95 perhaps, and you can do that um, to like, let's say, like you said, your risk, you're like, you're going on a plane and you're really concerned. So you want to put on a KN95 same way. And then you want to make sure that you really do want to pick something out. Um, make sure you can get K95s online or at the store. Uh, make sure it's a, it's a NIOSH approved one. So there's some approval rating for that. Um, but sometimes I find that like the cloth mask is easier for me, but if I smush this down like this on the K95, you can just make sure you're all covered. So that's uh, another mask you can use. And then when would you use this mask, which is the um, N95 mask? Uh, so the reason why you would use that is really most of us who are medical and we're doing like a procedure on a patient, like doing a test and they're coughing, then we would want to use a KN95, I mean, sorry, N95 mask, or David and I also use them when we're on a plane because you just really can't social distance on a plane. So make sure when you're wearing your N95 mask, you want to put those on properly as well and, um, and make sure your mask is, is really snug and you're, when you're breathing through that air doesn't go through it. So just wanted to just go through the mask, really choose something that really works for you and that you feel like you can keep it on all the time when you're out and about and exposed to, to other people. So I'm not sure if the, uh, I don't see the slides anymore. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, because I was doing the demo, thank you. All right, so um, once again, masks are widely available. You can purchase them online and um, uh, oftentimes like grocery stores even give them out for free or stores. So. Great, so that's another tool, our masks. Uh, next slide. And then another tool we have, which is you know, also you know, recent is like the testing. And that's, um, I know so many of you have been trying to get tests and there is a national shortage of tests because of Omicron. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of people looking for tests because they're symptomatic or they're exposed. Um, also, we have uh, recently with our vault testing, um, this is a national pro problem where they only have a certain amount of tests. And so it's like being on a line. And then when they're done with, you know, the certain amount that they give to New Mexico or any other state, they kind of cut off their amounts. And so it's, it's not just that group. I know many of you have tried to get tests. And like I said, it's difficult. Um, oh, start my video. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, so um, so these are some some options then that you have. You can do tests that you get at findatestnewmexico.org, curative.com, which is at no cost to New Mexicans. Like I said, vault, but there is a limit right now. Um, and then you can purchase home tests at your pharmacy or online. So let's say you're able to get a, a home test. Um, individuals should take a COVID test, whether it's a home test or one that you have to go to somewhere too. Uh, if you have COVID symptoms, you've been exposed or, or potentially exposed to someone with COVID. Um, for the at-home test, um, 
at the New Mexico Department of Health right now, um, thanks to support from the governor and the governor's office and our whole Department of Health team. Um, we are starting a free testing program for high, uh, like high social vulnerable zip codes, as well as places with high case rates. We're starting out with 35,000 tests that we'll start to distribute tomorrow. And we're in the process of trying to get another million more tests. Um, in addition to that, the Biden administration is also uh, working on getting tests that anybody can go online and get a test for your family. So we are, I think, as a state ramping up, as a, the whole United States, as a nation trying to ramp up, but not quite catching up to Omicron just yet, right? If you are able to get a home test, which we think there'll be more and more of, you can get the results in minutes. And uh, I'll kind of walk everybody through that on the next slide. Uh, next slide. So what I'm going to do is kind of give you an overview of what you do with a test, whether it's a home test result. Um, I will use the home test as an example, but I think many of us are wondering, um, you know, what do we do once we get a positive test or a negative test? And then also in the big pictures of things, um, CDC just reduced their quarantine and isolation period from 10 days to five days. And that big picture is because um, the, most of the recent data has shown that most people are infectious two days before they uh, get symptoms and then for the three days they have symptoms. So by day five, most people are finished with their, um, with their illness. However, all, this, all these recommendations that even though they went from 10 days to five days, you still have to wear a mask for the whole time, right? So like um, the, the 10 day is, is still including a mask at all times. So let's go through this and then um, hopefully, you know, you'll kind of get some idea. I mean, it is confusing to us too. We actually took a long time and thanks to, I'll just give a shout out to Liesl Gonzalez, our vaccine community coordinator and the rest of our vaccine and testing team, uh, including uh, David here to update this, um, this, this chart to have it all on one page. So let's say you get COVID um, and you, you got a positive test result with COVID with your rapid home test. So uh, two weeks ago, we showed you how to use the rapid home test. So you get a positive result. You should stay at home for five days. So I don't know if we can put a little uh, circle around the actual uh, column we're on, but if you stay at home for five days, this applies to people who are both vaccinated and unvaccinated. And that's because um, even though, you know, the vaccine and the boosters help with um, preventing hospitalizations and deaths, you can still get breakthrough cases. So you want to stay home for five days. Um, remember that when you stay at home, you want to stay in a room away from others in your household. Um, once again, this is really, really important. You actually do not need to get an additional PCR test. So sometimes people are like, oh, I got my rapid home test. It's positive. Let me go look for a PCR test. You don't need to get that. If you're positive, you're positive on the rapid test. If you don't have any symptoms after five days, so let's say, you know, you got positive, you have no symptoms after five days, 
you can leave your house, but wear a mask for five more days. Okay, so that's that's important because there's still a chance that you can be infectious, not as much as when you first got infected, but keeping that mask on will prevent you from spreading whatever little you know amount of virus you still have to others. Um, if you have a fever though, continue to stay home until your fever's gone for 24 hours without you know taking Tylenol. So for instance, um, I, I, I'm on day six of my I, you know my staying at home and I get a fever, I, I, I shouldn't leave my home until I'm done with the fever. Um, another important thing to prevent the spread, because all of this that we're trying to do now is just really how to live with COVID, how to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, tell anyone you recently had close contact with, which is basically less than six feet, you know, and, and more than 15 minutes. So oftentimes I'm spending time with people for more than that time and less than six feet. Um, I would encourage them to get tested or monitor for symptoms so that they can reduce exposure to other people. So that's that column. Um, the next column is the negative test result, or let's say you weren't even able to get a test. So let's go through, you did a rapid home test and you got a negative result, but you have symptoms. And this is also for both vaccinated and unvaccinated people. If you have cough, or, you know, I think all of us know what the symptoms are now for COVID, but cough, fever, chills, shortness of breath, muscle or body aches, vomiting, diarrhea, or a new loss of taste or smell, then you know, okay, I have symptoms. Um, if possible, you know, you want to get a PCR test if you can get one, but once again, we're in a time of shortage, right? So you can also say, huh, these test kits come with two tests inside. So I'll repeat my home test again in one to two days. And that really helps increase the chance that you actually um, can, you know, get, you know, if you are positive to check if uh, after two days, you might get an opportunity, not opportunity, but possibility that you're positive. Um, it's really important if you're, you have symptoms to stay home until you know the result. And if you're positive, when you do that second test or the PCR, then you go ahead and do the positive test results, um, you know, side. Um, if you're negative, um, um, again, then no other test is needed at that time. Um, once again, it is frustrating if you can't get a test and you have symptoms, assume you're positive and stay home and, and, and assume that you do all the same things as if you're positive. And I think that's really important because at the end of the day, we are trying to prevent the spread and live with COVID. Um, now, let's say you have a negative result and you have no symptoms. This is where vaccination status is actually really important. And that's because they found that people who are boosted and, and, and also, you know, you got your primary series and you're boosted actually have less chance of spreading it to others. So if you just got no symptoms and you had a negative test, you don't really need any other test at this time. But this is the other piece that's really important. If you did have a close contact with someone with COVID, and that's actually becoming more and more common as you saw that graph that David showed of Omicron just shooting up, you're just going to have more chance that you were exposed to someone. Then there's two different, um, you know, kind of quarantine that you do based on if you're 
gotten up to date on all your vaccines. So every vaccine you're eligible for. So you got, let's say, vaccinated and boosted because you're eligible for that. Then you don't have to stay at home, but you should still wear a mask around others for 10 days. And then if possible, test on day five to see if you were actually got positive. Um, and then if you're unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated or without a booster, so essentially not up to date on all your vaccines and booster, then the recommendation is to stay at home for five days and then wear a mask around others for five more days. Um, test on day five if possible, but at any point, if you develop symptoms, then you stay home and you end up in that back to the have symptoms column. I know it sounds confusing. Um, we will have this, like this is recorded so you can always go back and look at it. We will also have this on the website. Below it says, if you have any questions, please visit our um, cvnewmexicohealth.org self-test website. And then you can also call our coronavirus hotline. They have this chart as well, and they're all ready to um, receive your calls. Um, obviously, try the website first, and then you know if you have difficulty, then and um, go ahead and call us. Um, we are trying to make sure that everybody has this information because I think when we think about how to live with COVID, it's about what we do for each other and our community. And part of that is just trying to prevent the spread when we do know we have symptoms or potentially have COVID. Um, next slide. And then I will turn it back over to David. So thank you so much for um, listening in and uh, I'll just finish up with that. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks for your great work. Thanks for taking an impossible amount of information and putting it into a single page that even I can understand. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, I like to talk about learning to live with COVID and I just wanted to give an example. Uh, our family got together this year. Uh, we, um, most of my kids ski and we met in Park City, uh, Utah. And uh, uh, just to give you an idea of how we're trying to learn to live with COVID, everybody who arrived uh, got tested either with a PCR test or two home tests two days apart uh, within 48 hours of arrival. One of the participants, actually, in my extended family, came down with COVID. Uh, they were in Austria, so they couldn't fly to the uh, United States, waited until uh, she had uh, several negative tests and then flew and was there at the end of the week. We had a very elaborate schedule of what all the restaurants we wanted to go to, but we scrapped that completely and just cooked some great meals for ourselves and pretty much kept to ourselves. Uh, didn't really go indoors other than the place we were staying. And we had some home tests that uh, one, one of my grandsons was sick to his stomach. And uh, so just to be sure he got a home test that was negative and repeated that in another day and a half and it was negative. So I think it's more complicated figuring out all this testing and how to do it. I did want to emphasize that if you have a positive home test, uh, if it's positive, there is absolutely no need to get any more tests. The, 
if the test is positive, it's extremely reliable. And so uh, you don't have to get a PCR. I had a bunch of friends call me over the weekend asking how to get a PCR because their home test was positive and I talked them out of it. But if you have symptoms, you think you have COVID-19, you've been exposed, please get tested. If you have the positive test and symptoms and any of those risk factors I mentioned earlier, get treatment. It'll be a little tight the next couple of weeks, but we're working on bringing that up to speed, the data about the ineffectiveness of Omicron, uh, ineffectiveness of BAM, Eddie and uh, Regeneron against Omicron is very, very new. And so we're moving quickly. What Laura said about being indoors, I told you how our family approached that. We just did not go indoors anywhere other than the place we were staying. And then of course, the regular in, uh, admonitions, wash your hands, keep things clean, don't cough into open space, um, wear your mask, keep your distance, and don't give up on healthcare, even though they're busy in the outpatient world, they still want to see you because getting preventive healthcare keeps people out of the hospital. And they're seeing a lot of people in the hospital now uh, who delayed their care. And of course, we always end with another reminder to get vaccinated. And so with that, Matt, I think we're done and we can go to uh, uh, questions. Great, thanks so much. Um... Tons of activity in the Q&A and in the uh, chat today. And so I want to just make sure that um, that I'm serving all of you as, as members of the press corps well. Um, I'm going to assume that if you're dropping your question into the Q&A or the chat, that's because uh, you want me to ask it for you. And, and uh, if you don't, please just indicate that and uh, I will uh, defer back to you. Um, as usual, we'll go with our raise the hand method. So... Uh, a, a number of folks, I believe, have already raised their hands, and uh, we will uh, ask questions in order. Uh, there were a couple of folks who weren't able to um, to get out audio access or had other challenges, and so I'm going to ask um, some questions uh, for them. And then one other note from one of our uh, staff, um, her apologies, the team's been uh, working really hard to make these as smooth as possible, but we did make a small mistake, uh, which is that um, we started the webinar just a few minutes later than the, the Facebook Live, so if you are in the webinar and not watching Facebook Live, uh, you may have missed the first couple of minutes, but don't worry, it's there for you. As soon as we're done here, you can just go back to the New Mexico uh, Department of Health Facebook page and watch those first couple of minutes to catch anything uh, that you may have missed. Um, so with that, uh, I may actually call on a couple of folks and then get, get questions organized here and then um, ask them on behalf of, of reporters um, who, who would like me to do that. So with that, uh, we'll just start with Julia Goldberg, Jared Evanrek, and Spencer shocked, and then I'll ask a question on behalf of Colleen Heil at the Albuquerque Journal. So Julia, you are unmuted. Please feel free to ask your question. Uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, Dr. Scrace, Dr. Padahan, I'm one of the people that missed the beginning, so I apologize if you already said this. I will go back, um, and I sent a bunch of these ahead of time, so you might have addressed them already. But one thing we heard last week from, I think, Christus St. Vincent folks was that if you're using over-the-counter tests, you and there's two in a box you should use both because the first one might be negative and i just was curious if that's i don't want to say if that's accurate um but i would like to know if you think that is true as well and then i was just hoping you could also speak to the rising test positivity rate and to what degree that's also a function of the scarcity of tests i'm not sure kind of how we're supposed to be viewing that number in light of what 
it's the 7.5% target and where it is right now. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Julia. Could you repeat, you cut out right at the crucial words of your first question. It was something about if you have two tests at home, you should do both. Could you just say that one more time? Yeah. give you a correct answer? City had a webinar with Christmas last week, and it was indicated that if you buy a home test that has two in it, you should take both of them because the first one might give you a false negative. And that's the first and only time I've heard that. So I'm just curious if if that's a thing. Yeah, I actually think Laura's one pager really, really clarifies that. Typically, uh, the uh, the home testing uh, rapid antigen tests are can provide greater accuracy if uh, you do it serially, like day one, day three. If it's positive, you don't need to use the other test. I would save that for somebody in your family who needs to be tested now. Uh, but if it's negative and you have symptoms, I think Laura had that in her in her little one pager. If it's if your first test is negative and you have symptoms, I would wait a couple of days, a day or two, and then retest. What do you think, Laura? Do you agree with that? I, yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. So the reason um, the the rapid test, like David said, is much more accurate. If you if you do get a negative, then a few days later, if you have more symptoms, it can pick pick up that that test. Um, as a positive, potentially. Another thing, David, that I, I also recently learned was is that um, a lot of the Omicron um, is like kind of in your throat, as not as much in your nose. And so some people have been um, proposing that you do a swab in the back of your throat, as well as in your nose, to try to see if you can pick up more uh, virus. So that's another option for people to do for the, for the test, but I agree. Do the test if it's negative, wait a few days if you're still symptomatic to take another test. And, and then on the rising test positivity, this is one of those multifactorial mm-hmm. uh, causes for a higher test positivity just for people who don't tune in every week or don't like memorizing math formulas. <laughs> the test positivity, test positivity rate is the number of cases reported on that time period divided by the number of tests done in that time period. And remember, tests resulted, sorry, in that time period. So there are two different populations, but we use a day-to-day, you know, to get a general idea, we use a week's worth because that sort of washes out differences. So two reasons test positivity can go up. One is that the number of tests goes down, and the other is that the number of cases goes way up. Generally, we actually start seeing a rise in test positivity before we see a rise in cases. It's sort of early warning, if you will. Uh, I I would say it's due to that rapid rise in Omicron uh, cases that we're seeing in New Mexico. And if you missed the first part, you missed the second slide or third slide, which said we had 2,500 and some cases today. So, uh, and I also think third and maybe... More importantly, and I wish there was a better way to quantify this, but I just gave you this long story about all the tests my family did to get together over the holidays. I would estimate that a total of, oh gosh, 25 to 30 tests were done and only four of them were PCRs. I got a PCR at the drive-thru in Albuquerque. but And so a lot of those other tests don't get reported. So uh, we do hear from people when their test is positive. We don't hear from people 
ever really when their home test is negative. And so I think somewhere down the line, we're going to revise our criteria as tests, home testing because becomes uh, ubiquitous. You know, adding a million tests to the mix will do that um, as it becomes more ubiquitous. I think we're gonna we're gonna have to come up with a different criteria for test positivity, or even drop it as anything other than a leading indicator for a potential bump in cases. So, uh, I don't know, Laura, if you have anything else to add on that, but those that's kind of how I think about that. Uh, you know, that particular ratio after you know almost two years of experience with the virus here in our state. Great. Uh, next, we'll turn to Jared Ebenrek, followed by Spencer Schacht, and then I'll ask a question on behalf of another journalist. Jared, you're unmuted. Please feel free to ask your question. Thank you. Uh, Jared Ebenrek with KUNM News. Um, it, I asked it a version of it in the chat, but I'm going to ask it slightly differently. It Essentially, the CDC guidance announcement last week happened between a holiday break while staffing was low and the reports are caught public health officials unawares because the CDC recommendation went live without evidence. Then we had the announcement from NMDOH that these would be the recommendations that would be adopted. Today sounds like it's clear we're adopting some version of them. Where's the evidence for these new recommendations? How does NMDOH respond to the coverage that public health officials were left out of the loop with this CDC recommendation. And uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, good questions. Um, I'll say some things. Laura will probably say some things. Uh, we talked to the CDC kind of pretty much every day. I knew about the five-day quarantine, I think, before I left on leave, which was December 22nd. So I wasn't particularly out of the loop on that one. I might have my dates wrong, or maybe I got theoretically could have gotten a call while I was on vacation and somebody, Laura, could have mentioned it to me. But uh, I don't, you know, I think so. Number one, I feel like we're generally in the loop. Number two, I feel like it generally is wise practice on our part to go along with CDC guidance, except when we have convincing or compelling data that shows that what we're experiencing in New Mexico is different than what they may be seeing as a nation. So we have a couple recent examples of that. Mandating vaccines for healthcare workers came two, week, two weeks before the federal government, recommending boosters for everyone, not just shoulds and mays and, and the like. That came about a week and a half before uh, CDC recommendations because we were seeing the waning immunity data and we were following our cases closely. And then lastly, in my ideal dream world, um, we would have evidence for everything we do, like really solid, hard evidence. And right now, I think the randomized controlled trial where you have half the people isolate for seven days with COVID and half for five days, it just hasn't been done. A lot of the evidence is sort of based on uh, the virus counts in the nose with Omicron versus Delta and over time and things like that. I mean, I don't think they just took a wild guess. I think they were relying on more uh, more like biochemical or virologic uh, data than exact um, 
you know, randomized studies. So all through the pandemic, we've made an awful lot of calls uh, without sufficient evidence. Uh, I, you could, I could argue every call we've made hasn't had evidence sufficient to totally satisfy me. But I think, oh, so far, our track record's been great. And I don't, uh, I don't believe uh, that the CDC would have made this recommendation uh, if they felt like there was any possibility of putting the population at greater risk for getting COVID or greater risk for spread. So new virus, uh, learning as we go. You might remember they started with 14 days, then it was real quickly after that it was 10, and then it was seven. And so uh, we're just learning as we go. But we feel like we have a great partnership with CDC. We give them feedback, they give us feedback. Uh, sometimes they're not happy, like when we just recommended boosters for everyone, but then, you know, they said, but we're gonna be making the same recommendation next week anyway, so you're okay. Laura, I know you deal with uh, folks in a lot of those meetings more yeah. than I probably. Yeah, so they they did meet with us several times and, and let us know that a lot of people did give them feedback. A lot of the different state health officials throughout the United States did. Um, I think, you know, it's once again, it's um, it, it was partially, like you said, not fully, we don't have the evidence that we can do a 10-day versus a 5-day, but they did look up a lot of the evidence regarding transmission rates once again, that most of the transmission happens before the five days and then less transmission after the five days and, and the mask wearing is so important, right, as a, as a component of that. And then they also took into account um, the fact that Omicron basically almost shut down New York and, you know, parts of the East Coast so that, you know, there were people who were just fine with COVID, but they, you know what I mean, they were stuck in 10 days. So they also made some of these like social economic um, reasons for this as well. Um, and then I believe the other piece that was really important is that it's not for every single person and every single setting, right? This is a guidance for the general population. Um, the public education department is looking at it right now for the K through 12. It was also recommended for that group and workplaces, but it's not recommended for long-term care facilities or homeless shelters. That's still 10 days, you know, places that are at higher risk are still gonna be 10 days. Um, people who are immune compromised, it is still recommended that they also, you know, use a 10 day isolation. So it's not for everybody, it's for the general population, but they, they do have, and I put a link here to the CDC website where they explain the science and frequently asked questions. I don't know if everybody can get to that link. Um, and then also explains a little bit more about quarantine and isolation under the five day set. Hey, Laura, I think you posted that to uh, hosts and panelists. I think I oh. can probably repost it to everyone. Um, oh, how, how do, oh, I see. Okay, I do it to everyone. Okay, thanks. Let me do okay, that. Okay, yeah, it sounds like okay. you'll take care of that. Um, thank you. Yeah. So uh, next we'll turn to uh, Spencer Schacht, and I'll ask a question on behalf of a reporter, and we'll turn to Chris McKee. Uh, Spencer, you are unmuted. Hi, this is Spencer Schock. Can everyone hear me now? Yes, sir. Perfect. Sorry about that. Um, my question goes back to testing. I know we have talked a little bit about there is a lack of tests available. And so when someone goes into um, a pharmacy or a store to get an at-home test, there are a lot of options of $10, $25, $100 options. Does it matter or how does it 
the effectiveness of those tests change depending on how much you pay for it. Should you swing for that higher one or will the $10 one give you an accurate result as well? And then I well, just have a second part to that question of we've known a few people who have taken an at-home test that says negative, 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 and then they get the PCR test and it says positive. Are these at-home tests actually picking up Omicron? Uh, so that's really a question about sensitivity. So just a second. Uh, so there's effectiveness and there's cost effectiveness. Uh, you know that $5 Binax Now uh, cards, at least that's the state's price. You know, I think, for example, 20 of those would be way more effective than one uh, $100 test, the same same price. So there's no good study about relative sensitivities and specificities. You could, you'd have to go through the FDA, EUAs for each one of them, but generally they're good. You might remember a couple a uh, year ago, we were more cautious about home testing because of the low sensitivity. A sensitivity means what percent of the time if someone has COVID, will the test pick it up? And with one single test, it ran in the 70% range. I'm really going way back here, but I think that was the, the right number. But then what we learned was with consecutive tests, actually you're more likely to find it. And we hear lots of stories about people with multiple negative tests and then a positive. Sometimes they got COVID, you know, between the negative tests and the positive tests, they had a different virus and then they were super infected with COVID, but um, they wouldn't have an FDA EUA if they didn't meet certain reliability criteria. So I would not recommend that people go out and buy the most expensive test because you think if it costs more, it'll work better. Uh, also, I see my internet connection's unstable. So real quickly, and I'll turn it over to Laura. Uh, the other thing is I think Laura's really excellent one pager kind of covers this. It's, you know, get tested with a home test. If you still have symptoms, get another test. You could get a PCR if you want. You can take another home test, either one. So uh, we think that the, the lower sensitivity of the home testing, the antigen testing, it is offset by it's really accessible. It's way less expensive, way more accessible to people. You know, you can be mailed the test and, and get it. So that's kind of how we're thinking about it uh, right now. Um, and hope I hope that was helpful. As I mentioned, uh, in my big family, I happened to go get a PCR just because I could, because I had the day off. But uh, in my extended family, only what would that be? Maybe 20% of the people who got tested. And my family's pretty gung-ho about not getting COVID. Only 20% of the tests were actually PCR tests. And we all felt safe, comfortable, felt they were reliable. Laura, anything else on choice of testing or accuracy of uh, antigen rapid antigen tests? Yeah, I think you pretty much covered it. I agree with the fact that, you know, don't go for the more expensive test because anything that was EUA approved is, you know, going to be okay. I think we can't necessarily also test ourselves out of this situation. I think um, what we're also trying to share is that, you know, if you're symptomatic and you have symptoms that are like really likely for COVID, you know, yeah, the, the tests aren't 100%, but if you 
test, you know, like David said, like one test is negative, but you're pretty sure you have symptoms, you test again, then you are more likely to pick that up. And then even if you aren't able to get a test, and I think that's really important to know, know or note, is that if you feel like you do have, you know, if you have those symptoms of COVID, just assume you have COVID and stay in for the five days, right? And then wear a mask for five days because maybe you have flu or you have something else that's infectious and transmissible to others, right? So I think that, you know, it's all about learning to live with COVID. We may not always have access to tests, but we do know when we have symptoms and don't want to, you know, uh, spread it to someone. I think the the main thing, David, that I think about when we don't have access to tests is making sure people who are older have an access to tests because then we do give them a, a therapy that can make a difference. So I think that's one of the things we're thinking about right now is how do we make sure people who, who could get benefit from getting a COVID treatment, um, make sure we get them tests, so. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I'm going to ask a question on behalf of Colleen Heild at the Journal now, and then we'll follow that up by turning to Chris McKee and then Scott, Scott Weiland. Um, so from Colleen Heild, uh, I'm trying to figure out the impact of the CMS mandate affecting New Mexico and 24 other states requiring COVID vaccinations of staff or exemptions by February 28th. The question is, does this duplicate already existing state public health orders or will it encompass additional types of healthcare facilities not covered by the state requirement? So uh, I I was away and I, I didn't hear about the CMS mandate. It sounds like this is an example of New Mexico being six weeks ahead on this. And so uh, the one, you know, with healthcare workers, there isn't like a test out option Although if you get an exemption, then you have to test. But like some some scenarios, like right now, uh, state uh, employees, teachers, and school staff, and uh, healthcare workers are all required to be boosted if they need a booster. If it's the time is right by uh, January seventeenth, sounds like the feds are focusing in on healthcare workers. So uh, the fed rules and things like that don't have to override the state. I think we just are getting it done sooner. And, you know, a large part of this is we have less healthcare workers than other states do. We have less hospital states than other uh, than other states do. And so what we're going to see in the coming weeks is a lot more healthcare workers and uh, teachers and others, like we've seen in other cities, getting sick, getting infected, and then reducing our ability to uh, have schools open, uh, cover all the healthcare needs of the state. So I don't know, Laura, are you familiar with that CMS yeah, mandate? Maybe you could I actually did. provide some factual information. <laughs> yeah, I, just, <laughs> I just texted someone from our team um, who's working on the testing. And so, yeah, I think it's exactly what you're saying. We're six weeks ahead or several weeks ahead in terms of vaccinating areas with Medicaid and Medicare. Um, I think that's what we've been doing. And um, yeah, I think the one that's most, uh, the highest one coming up right now is that I believe January 7th, the people who do have to get tested are people who are uh, working in places that have more than 100 people. So that, that group is also the next group that's having to get tested. And then also um, the, the reminder that 
you know, if you don't get your boosters on the 17th for the group that is required to get boosters, that group also has to start getting tested as well. Is that correct, David? Just, yeah. I think, I think yeah. so. Okay. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, next, we'll turn to Chris McKee, followed by Scott Weiland, and then I'll ask another question on behalf of another reporter. Chris, you should be unmuted. Feel free to ask your question. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you both for your time here today. Um, I, I wanted to ask a question related to kind of the uh, the multiplier effect. Um, we remember the state, I know in the many press conferences over the last year, the state talking about that multiplier of likely about three, three additional cases, perhaps it was for every one confirmed case, but those Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, I guess there is to say, there is that multiplier. We know there are more cases out there than um, the numbers that come out every day. And obviously, as we're sort of seeing Omicron come out, more cases, more home testing, which wouldn't get reported kind of into the system, right? Um, I'm kind of curious if there is a thought about working on a new multiplier, maybe, that's out there as we sort of enter this latest wave of the pandemic because it, it does feel to some degree like that total case count number couldn't possibly account for all of the virus that's out there and i know that that's sort of been part of the discussion as is over the last year as it is so anyway thoughts on I that it's a new multiplier. really good question so i was thank you i think uh this was a really hot topic uh in 2020 when Stanford researchers reported that for every one case, there was 50 cases or 80 cases out there. And, uh, but then the CDC reported, no, it's not that I, it's more like in their data, like for every one case, there's like four to, uh, uh, it was 20 or something like that, 24. In New Mexico, because we've done some surveillance studies, we use our labs for people getting other blood tests to run, uh, to see who's been had COVID and who hasn't in New Mexico. And the, and the lower this number, the better. So we're doing uh, really well. Uh, we believe that for every 10 cases we know about, there may be another eight cases out there. So our, we're one of the few states where that multiplier is actually below one. Uh, I think now, though, it's different. It's kind of chilling, Chris, to think of us sitting here saying, yeah, we had over 2,500 cases today. And oh, by the way, there's a lot more out there. I think you're right. I think that multiplier will change with Omicron. I think part of the multiplier effect when it first came out was to try to encourage us to think, oh, we're going to get to herd immunity. But then we realized that coronavirus is kind of like influenza probably in many ways, where we're never going to have herd immunity per se. And so I think that because everyone's abandoned herd immunity, we've kind of also ban abandoned the multiplier effect. And in fact, we were talking before the press conference today is, you know, on the website, we have, we still use the, we still list people who've had their primary series. And then we tell you how many people had boosters, but people who've had their primary series and are due for a booster, but haven't had it, their vaccines are no longer up to date either. And so, we're trying to figure that all out. But I think I think for our point of view right now, uh, since we're not going to get to herd immunity, probably ever, and most of us have given up on that, uh, the multiplier doesn't really play into the equations. But it's always going to be true. And with home testing as well, 
that there'll be more people out there um, with COVID than we're, we're seeing. Hopefully, and I would beg everybody watching to tell all their friends, if you do have a, if you have a positive test, please report it to the Department of Health. I believe there's an online way to do that. Uh, but um, starting tomorrow, or let's sorry, Thursday, sorry. <laughs> just, just to, we're updating. Yeah, for tomorrow. So, okay. So anyway, that's kind of a long answer. Uh, but I think, I think we, I think at this point, the multiplier doesn't get us any closer to anything other than maybe the reality of what's actually going on out there right now. So thanks for raising it. Thanks, everybody. Uh, next, we'll turn to Scott Weiland, and then I'll ask a couple of questions on behalf of other reporters. Scott, you are unmuted. Right. Thanks for taking our questions. Yeah, Scott Weiland with the Santa Fe New Mexican. Yep. Yeah, you just you touched on the effectiveness of vaccines, and I did read in a couple places that the booster, uh, could, you know, could start losing its full effectiveness after ten or twelve weeks. Uh, but that's not something that's widely reported, like many other things about COVID. Uh, do you agree with that, or do you have data on that? And because it seems to be leading to the potential reality that oh, we might have to get a booster every three months. You know, um, I know Israel is talking about giving a four shot to people now. They're a little ahead, though, in boosting. We really are, what, eight to 10 weeks really after the onset of most people being eligible for boosters. So it's a little early to tell. I think a more important factor is not uh, how long does the booster last against, in this case, Omicron. I think more importantly, it's like how long, uh, what's the next variant going to be and will the vaccine work for it or not? It, on our table at the beginning, it's, it's the only question mark left is, you know, what uh, what's the susceptibility to the vaccine? So I don't know yet. I mean, I would love it. Someone else sent in a question about how COVID mainly happens in the winter and not so much in the summer, which is true worldwide, but not in New Mexico. And so... Uh, I think what we're going to do, or try to do anyway, is to uh, come up with a way to uh, uh, shoot. I I have all these text messages flashing in front of my screen, and I uh, lost uh, lost my turn of that. I think we're there. We'll be monitoring new variants, and hopefully, we'll have a, a longer lead time on vaccine susceptibility. But it's it's tricky because the only way to know really if a vaccine works against a variant is for a whole bunch of people to get the variant and then look at their vaccination data to tell. And so I don't think every three months, I think that would be extreme. Uh, that would be a tough nut to crack, but uh, I'm not looking at that. I was kind of settling into, well, maybe we're gonna need a couple a year until COVID becomes a seasonal virus. Thanks so much. Okay, next I'll, I'm gonna ask a question on behalf of Kayla Norwood and of KOAT. And obviously, Kaylin, you're, you're always welcome to ask uh, your questions uh, as well. Uh, Kaylin's asking um, about the state's current approach to contact tracing. Um, and we had talked in a couple of previous press conferences about how when we're staffed for, say, 300 cases a, a day and we're seeing 1,500, you know, it's a difficult operation to run. Her question is, is contact tracing of less importance now? And if so, where is our focus instead? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And contact tracing is, uh, it's really effective when it's really effective. And then there are times when it's not as effective. So uh, when we talk about contract contact tracing, it's sort of a combination of two things. It's case isolations, no, notifying the person they're positive of COVID. And now only 90% of people already know, 99% of people know they're COVID positive. It's unusual for us to call someone who doesn't already have their test result in hand. And that's thanks to the labs giving online reporting access to people. And, you know, you get text messages with your test results now. So that that isolation function or notification part of isolation, you know, we have a lot more resources online now for self-instruction regarding isolation. Then after the, we get through that, we go through, well, who have you been in contact with? Where have you been? What kinds of things you've been doing? And I know you've all heard this from me a million times, but uh, um, it's like we call people now and actually a, a huge percentage, almost 50% of people don't even want to talk to the Department of Health on the phone about their COVID because uh, it's a lengthy process. I mean, it takes an hour to go through all these questions. Two, what we're finding is pretty much everybody is doing everything with everyone everywhere. And so if your hope was to identify a common source of infection, that's completely gone. When there was a lockdown and people had an average of 1.2 contacts, we were able to do some of that, but now we can't. And then the last thing is, uh, if you go if you go back to that slide, you don't have to bring it up, Rihanna, but just the case count graph, it goes up and down and up and you know, it's impossible to staff any operation with that kind of variability. And so what we're really focused on now, we're still doing it, still calling people, still monitoring the statistics. But what we're really focusing on now is ways to better automate the system. So I would love it if I could, hey, uh, you know, get a text from the DOH that um, hey, you probably know that um, your, your COVID test is positive. Click here to do um uh, to learn more about isolation and what you should do. Uh, and then click here to enter in places you've been, people you've been in contact with, or just their email addresses, and then having DOH or email address or phone number, then having that algorithm automatically notify those people, sort of like NM Connect. Uh, it would still be anonymous, but you've been in contact with someone who uh, now has COVID, uh, click here, to see what you should do next. So I'm, I'm really pushing since I came to DOH to, and we saw the declining acceptance and taking calls from us about contact tracing. I'm really pushing for automated solutions, trying to make this more efficient for everybody. And we are investing in that so that most of what you need to know about your COVID infection, you can find out uh, on the phone. Thanks so much. Okay. On, your, on your phone, I mean, or via text or email. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Grace. Uh, next, we'll turn to Bruce Weatherby, and I'm going to ask a question on his behalf. Um, his question is about hospital staffing, and he cites a report in uh, Becker's Hospital Report uh, this week, citing or, or listing New Mexico at the top of the national list for hospitals uh, that face staffing crises. And I think his, he asked a series of questions, but I think the bottom line of these questions is, is what is the state uh, uh, thinking and, and doing about the, the fact that we face a staffing crisis in our hospitals across the state? Okay, 
that's a good one. Uh, so Bruce, I hadn't seen the report. I went and looked it up. So thanks for sending us the link. I think it has New Mexico tied with another state for number one with something like 57% of our hospitals having a staffing crisis. So I want to start by saying I think that number's low. I haven't talked to any of our hospitals that aren't experiencing severe staffing challenges. I'm not sure exactly what the definition of staffing crisis was or the survey. So it's probably even worse than that, uh, than 57%. At the same time, we've been working really closely with the hospitals. We have one statewide system for trying to distribute care to the places where beds are available vis-a-vis -vis those maps I show you every week with the number of beds available. Uh, uh, we've had less hospital beds, less doctors and nurses than most states. We're usually in the bottom third or bottom quarter on those. And uh, I absolutely, we need long-term planning. Some of that's being done. There's extensive efforts going on. Probably it would take me too long to describe them. Uh, we're building new graduate ed ed medical education programs to train mainly primary care doctors in New Mexico through some legislation. We are really working hard through a primary care council to expand uh, primary care growth even further. Uh, and others, uh, so those, that task force is looking at uh, doctors and then we're looking at nurse practitioners as well. Uh, the nursing board in our state is doing some looking into nursing supply. I know some of our bigger systems, but I can't give you details on what those plans are today for um, how, how, how nursing is approaching it. I know, I know they're working though extensively with higher education uh, in colleges to expand nursing training program opportunities here in the state. And we did have, you know, we got our second medical school in New Mexico. I believe it was about five years ago, five and a half years ago. They graduated, they graduated two classes uh, of new doctors, many of whom are staying in the state. So it is absolutely a clear need for long-term planning. And, and I think a lot of people have been on that. Uh, actually, since before the pandemic, the primary care graduate medical education expansion bill came out of the legislature in 2019. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, we're gonna quickly jump back to a topic that we had discussed a moment ago and, and wrap that up. And then uh, Juno and Jeffrey, thank you so much for your patience. I'll get to you next and then we'll uh, open it up for a second round of questions. Um, so wanted to return to this question about uh, whether and how folks can report positive cases. Uh, there's This is connected to a technology we've had in place for some time, which is New Mexico Notify. And uh, Dr. Padahan has some comments about how we're gonna integrate those two functions. Yeah, so I just wanted to share, can everybody see the screen on yeah, Notify? So, so sorry, I've already enabled it. So, um, you know, but if you haven't enabled it, you can go to NM Notify and basically get connected um, via your phone. Um, and it basically tracks your phone um, like as a way to identify if you have been exposed to somebody. I think, David, you said 40% of the population has uh, signed up for NM Notify. The only issue that we're having with them right now is that it is linked to Apple and Google. And so we did ask them uh, last week to 
to turn on the piece where you can enter your own rapid home antigen test data into the system. Um, they have they were supposed to have done that by Wednesday, where we're well, which was today. Uh, we see that it's not on there yet, but they told us within the next few days you should have the ability to then enter your own uh, data inside the uh, NM Notify. Right now, if like, let's say you got tested and you wanna be able to use the phone to alert your contacts, um, you can say, get a new verification code and click on that. And then that'll take you to this place here where you put all your information, the time you got your testing date, and then it register you on the system as someone who's positive, and then it'll notify you and your contacts, right? Um, that you're positive, you're exposed. It doesn't tell you who you are, right? They don't say, Laura was positive, she's your friend. It just goes to the network of where your phone has, you know, been with, um, in contact with, and it'll just say you've been exposed to somebody who is positive. So that's the way we're using the tracking system. It's more of a community tracking system and not necessarily DOH saying we have that 5,000 positive rapid antigen test, you know, that that's not what it's for. So. Yeah. I put another way to tie those two questions together. If everyone okay. in New Mexico had the app, we wouldn't have to do any contact tracing. So exactly. you get the notification you're exposed. You go get tested. If you didn't have any symptoms, you'd be done. Mm -hmm. If you had symptoms, and the first test was negative, you'd probably get a, a second test. But really, uh, uh, it is a, the ultimate solution. I know that not everybody likes the idea of their phone being monitored. I think it's a great trade-off. I'd like to know. You know, I'm signed up. So we'd like to encourage everybody to continue to uh, sign up for that. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to jump back to the folks who've raised their hands, and I, I get the sense that there's a little bit of frustration with the pace of things today, um, only because lots of folks have dropped questions in the chat, and we're going back and forth to those who've raised their hands. Um, typically, we just go with raising the hands, but I'm um, doing my best to juggle today. So uh, thank you, everybody, for your patience. Uh, we will, we're going to try not to go much longer than 530. That's a full two hours, uh, but we'll try to get through as many questions here as we can in that uh, remaining time. So for now, I'm going to turn back to Juno Ogle. Uh, and Juno, you are unmuted. Feel free to ask your question. Uh, thank you, Juno Ogle from the Roswell Daily Record. Um, and actually, I was going to ask about uh, the MN Notify. Um, I think you said there were 40% of New Mexicans who had signed up. If you could maybe repeat that, you were kind of glitching in and out a little bit. Yeah, but I, I think it's about 37. Last I saw was a month ago, 37%, but we can get that data for you. Okay, Great. Is that living up to what you had hoped to see at this point of people You're going to figure in as you kind of reevaluate the criteria and, and the self-reporting um, rather than, you know, with, with home testing becoming more available? How, how is the NM Notify maybe going to become more important uh, for the state's reporting system? Thank you. Yeah, it's a great question, Juno. Welcome back. I think it's been a few weeks since we heard from you. Uh, I think, you know, I as I said earlier, I think ultimately NM Notify is one of the steps to learning to live with COVID. I mean, I mean, you think about calling someone up and going through the list of everywhere they've been and then getting all the contact information and typing that in and then sending it out. I think I think it's a very elegant, very simple solution that 
basically reminds us when to get tested and uh, which is what we want. We want to be reminded uh, when we're at higher risk and when we should get tested. So I would love to see it, you know, by June with all of your help to have 80% of New Mexico on it. And uh, I think that will increase testing a little bit, but it's pretty chilling. I haven't gotten one yet, but I know lots of people have gotten the notification and you know, some people who are really, really careful and don't go anywhere. And it's set to notify you if your phone was within six feet of another phone for 15 minutes for someone who later turned out to have COVID. So it's pretty sophisticated. And so I'm hoping it kind of really becomes one of the main ways we learn to live with COVID. It helped battle these up, up and downhill case curves. Great. Next, we'll turn to Jeffrey Plant. Jeffrey, you are unmuted. Thanks, Matt. This is Jeffrey Plant with the Silver City Daily Press. I wanted to ask a clarifying question about the self-test guidance. Uh, if someone tests positive using an antigen test, uh, I think he disappeared entirely from the list. Well, if I were going to guess what he's going to ask, he was going to ask if someone gets an antigen test, are you saying they don't need a PCR? And the answer to that is yes, you do not. One positive test is all you need to know you have COVID. False positivity rate, less than 1%. Jeffrey, I see you on the list now. Was that the question you meant to ask? Sorry, I really didn't get that. There was somebody speaking over us. Uh, it, it, sorry, so you do need a positive PCR test result to get a treatment or not? So some facilities choose to run a fast PCR at their facility to give treatment. Uh, and that's really up to the facility uh, and their criteria. Most of them do repeat the PCR just because it's such a scarce resource, not the PCR, but the monoclonal antibody treatment. So I, I, I think you go with what the facility requires. Up until recently, they were requiring, they were repeating, I know UNM, Prez, uh, Loveless all repeat uh, the test in the ED. Uh, <clears throat> we also use those test results later to uh, when we're doing uh, genomic sequencing, uh, the, they can get into the mix then. So there are other reasons for doing the test, just trying to get characteristics of sicker people. Thank you. Great. Um, so I'm gonna ask a question on behalf of Susan Montoya Bryan. And then uh, let's treat this as the beginning of round two. Um, so anybody that would like to ask an additional question, now's a great time to hey, raise man, your hand. Did, did we ask Stella's question yet? It was answered by Laura, I think, in the chat. She was asking oh, about... Okay, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. She still owes me a cake, by the way. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying, Stella. Okay. Stella, sorry it took us a minute to get to you, but I'm glad you got your answer. Um, Susan's question from the AP is can Dr. Scrace and Patahone tell us what they're hearing about the return to school? Any concerns about Omicron at some point forcing a return to remote for districts where positivity is high? What would that threshold be? And what are any concerns we may have about the availability of testing for students? So this is like under intensive daily, many times a day discussion in New Mexico right now. I think what we're learning from other states is the problem with Omicron in the schools is not people infecting each other in the schools, but more 
staff in particular, too many staff getting uh, COVID infections and therefore having to miss work, not from school, but just from being out and about, often, like I always like to say, doing everything with everyone everywhere. And so, uh, so I think that, and one other thing that New Mexico knows, but I don't know that any other, I haven't seen it from anyone else, but when we've done our modeling, every time we look at return to schools, results, case counts are always lower with kids in school than when they're at home. And we think that's because it's an environment where you have to wear a mask, you have to keep your distance. And so it's a safer environment than the community at large. And so uh, I don't think we're going to establish thresholds at this point. Uh, the discussions aren't over, so I'm not entirely certain. But I think uh, what mainly we'll see is uh, significant shortages of staff at schools that will cause schools to have to close down, or return, mainly return to remote learning until they're over this peak. If Omicron is as narrow a peak as we're uh, hoping it is, that could be four to six weeks and uh, we can get to the other side of it. That would be good, but um, we are really looking at it. And I think the last part of your question is, is there concern about it having enough testing? Yep, there is. You know, We have a test to stay program in the schools where if one kid in the class has COVID, he, she or he gets to go home, they have to go home and quarantine at home for the five days, but the other kids in the class can return to school with regular testing on one and three and five days. And so that will be stressed um, if we see more student cases in school. I think the number one intervention, like if I had a magic wand and could just intervene and have one thing happen that would be best for the schools and keep the case counts down, it would be to have every parent in New Mexico keep their children at home if they have any symptoms at all that could be COVID. And if we did that, that would do far more to control the spread of coronavirus than any kind of interventions uh, the state could make. Thanks. Next, we'll turn to Julia Goldberg, and then I'll ask another question on behalf of Kayla Norwood. Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thanks, Matt. I'll be concise. For, well, that's probably not true. Um, Dr. Scrace, uh, Dr. Petahood, I'm sure you won't like this question very much, but the number one thing I've heard from people, a lot of people have said to me in the last week is, look, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, everyone I know has COVID, we're all going to get it, you can't avoid it, it's not as dangerous now, oh well. I, I'm just kind of, I'm sure a defeatist attitude isn't something you're psyched about, but I'm just wondering what your response is to that, because it, there is sort of this sense of, well, what what more can one do if one's done all those things and now it's everywhere? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm okay if that conclusion is true. I don't really care for the attitude and there's a lot of exaggeration words in there like everyone I know has COVID and we're all gonna get it. But I, if we can evolve to a milder form of the virus, that would actually be a really, really good thing. I mean, we don't have you know, press conferences every week to talk about avoiding the common cold and that's because it's not as fatal. Uh, I get the discouragement. I understand how people feel. I know it's frustrating. I think the point that most people are missing is they think of Omicron and Delta and Alpha and everything before that as being all one big lump of COVID, and they're not. It would be more, I think, 
it would help people think about it and maybe be more less frustrated if they realize really we're seeing different viruses with different characteristics. They all happen to be a coronavirus. And by the way, we've had, you know, four of those floating around for many, many, many years. Probably most of us have had one of them. But I think the frustration comes in with seeing it all as just one big lump of COVID and not these different variants that are coming through. Not to say that I'm not a little bit frustrated with Omicron myself. I mean, it's a lot of hard work getting everyone vaccinated and now getting everyone boosted and seeing vaccinated people get cases and more of the cases is frustrating to us too. But um, as long as the long-term solution ends up with an influenza-like mortality rate, uh, it's just going to be mild. Everyone's going to get it. And we just have to live with it. I'm okay with that. But the problem is right now, at least the data we have right now, the mortality rate, death rate is 12 times higher and hospitalization rates about the same. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to turn to Kayla Norwood now. And then I noticed there aren't any other remaining hands. So just last call for hands. And if I don't see any after asking and having this question answered, I think we'll turn to final statements. So um, on behalf of Kayla Norwood, uh, the question is, can you go into more detail about the distribution for at-home tests? I noticed that DOH had funding funding procurement of $16,000 in December for rapid testing kits. Is this for at-home testing? So I'm going to let Laura answer this question, but I like to do math for Laura. And so uh, and she likes me to do math for her. So I'm wondering if this 16K bought us those 30-some thousand tests you were talking about that we already have. And we're and, and you can talk about what we're planning on doing with for yeah, the million. That's, Go ahead. that's a really good question. And um, so we've had different kinds of funding procurements. So that could be one of them. I'm not quite sure if that's the specific one for the rapid testing for kids, but we have been purchasing for rapid testing for kids, for shelters, for uh, different locations that have needed it throughout the state. And then currently I can just show you this little quick picture here. Um, this is our social vulnerability index map. So this is a map of all the high zip codes um, in um, with high social vulnerability in New Mexico. And so we're working with our community partners and different distribution sites throughout the state to try to make sure we can get an initial allocation out for different organizations that are working with social vulnerable populations like WIC and um, different emergency managers and different community organizations. And then obviously adding more when we get them 1 million um, doses of tests that were on doses, 1 million tests that we're trying to purchase. So um, we are um, doing that. So I'm not sure if that 16K is for that, but it is part of the allocations we're doing for rapid testing for kids and a lot of other uh, sites that we're working with right now. Great. Okay, I don't see any additional hands. So with that, let's turn to Dr. Potterhorn and then Dr. Screese for final comments today. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for all your questions and all you're doing to um, promote a safer New Mexico. I just want to once again just remind people that we have such a great tool in uh, the vaccines and then the layering of the masks and the testing and then actually staying home and isolating or you know preventing ourselves from getting sicker when we um yeah when we get covid because 
I do think that vaccines are working to prevent hospitalizations and death. Uh, true that there are more breakthrough cases. Omicron is so infectious, but we are, like David said, not seeing as many deaths and hospitalization, at least not for now. And um, yeah, keep on doing what everyone's doing and just encouraging people. I think we're still seeing gaps in especially our Hispanic Latino population and African-American population um, in the children group, the five to 11 year old group and uh, younger, uh, the other adolescent groups. So, you know, please um, ask someone that you know, you trust, um, that you feel confident in to, to, to ask about the vaccine, your provider or someone to let, you know, to let you know that those are safe and effective for kids and we, we can protect our kids and also our elders if we get vaccinated and boosted. So thanks. Great, uh, ditto to that. Just a, one last thanks to Matt Bieber for his role in DOH as our uh, uh, PIO. I, I do wanna do a free advertising if you're out there as a reporter and think that having the busiest and most exciting job in communications in New Mexico, would be right up your alley, call me. Uh, we need to replace Matt and we don't have someone lined up. We also have other jobs in uh, at a higher levels in DOH and HSD as well. So uh, if you're one of those people watching out there and you've got a really strong finance background or uh, you know you like the idea of working in human services, you can get all of us as well. Send a resume uh, to uh, my email address, which is just David Scrace, one more, no, david.scrace at state.nm.us. I just had to do that because in order to keep doing these press conferences, we need uh, all the help we can get. Uh, second thing is we will not be doing the press conference next Wednesday afternoon for sure. Laura and I and Christine, uh, when she gets back, are all gonna be uh, presenting to the House Appropriations Committee regarding our both, uh, I'll be HSD and DOH and everybody else DOH budget. So we're not sure when it's gonna be exactly yet. And we'll have to let you know uh, as soon as we can huddle together and figure out the date. Uh, lots of conflicts next week with the ramp up for the legislature, but we'll figure out a way to keep feeding you information. And then finally, just, I really appreciate Julia's uh, speaking what everyone is thinking, like, uncle, you know, this is, can't we be over with this? Uh, we're so tired of it. We're, we're so sick of it. I did everything I could do. And, you know, still everybody's getting COVID. I guess my words are just hanging in there. I mean, if death rates drop, if hospitalization rates drop, um, that means we're on our way to learning to live with COVID. It really does. And and we're on our way to coexisting with the virus in a state that doesn't hospitalize as many people and, and take as many lives. So that's kind of the little ray of hope that I'm looking at with my magnifying glass uh, right now. It's a bad couple of weeks to be going on leave, but I'm catching up uh, coming back. I still think we've got this. I think the New Mexican people know how to jump in and help when help is needed. They know what to do. And I'm hoping that we'll, uh, we'll get through this, what hopefully will be a relatively brief wave and then be able to maybe go on to the next 
hopefully, fingers crossed, even milder uh, variant of COVID and then the even milder one after that. Very similar to what we've seen with influenza over the past 102 years, but only time will tell. We can't know for sure. Hopefully it won't be a booster every three months. Uh, and you know, hopefully maybe another one and then maybe things will settle and we'll find out. But appreciate all of you, like Laura said, doing what you know needs to be done. Just the fact that you're watching this to get information and learn more, that really helps the whole state. It really helps us do our jobs and we appreciate all of you. So happy new year. Hopefully one of your new year's resolutions is to do one more thing you can do to be safer during the time of COVID and keep yourself and your family safe. Hopefully people out there, hopefully like, I don't know what, 18% uh, of New Mexicans made a new year's resolution to get their first vaccine or you decided to get the booster, but uh, all the, those are things that every, we all can do to improve our health and help us get through this. So thank you for your time. Thanks for your attention. Sorry we went uh, so late uh, after working hours today, but this is an important week to get this information out. You all be safe. And uh, don't be afraid to get tested if you think uh, something's not right. Thank you.